The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Life-Changing Magic of Making a Black Friend Edition. It's Wednesday, January 16th, 2019. On today's show, Green Book was a surprise winner at the Golden Globes. I say a surprise because it did middling business at the box office and was widely panned as an anachronistic racial reconciliation drama. We discussed the movie and its dubious politics with Kay Austin Collins of Vanity Fair. And then Marie Kondo scored a big hit, uh, not middling at all, with her book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. She now has a Netflix show derived from that called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. And finally, The Art of the Hatch Job, The Pan, are scathingly bad reviews a sign of a healthy and open debate or of the diseased conscience of the sallow little creep, Dana Stevens, known as the critic. <laughs> Joining me today is Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens, Salar. Who's who's the sallow little creeper? We all know it's me, which is why I can get away with making that joke, Dana. <laughs> You're not a hatchet lady at all. I mean, ever, really. We'll get there. We'll get there. I welcome your insults in the meantime. <laughs> These are not insults. Oh, my God. They're boomeranging directly into the bridge of my nose. I mean, come on. And, of course, everybody knows the job title of Julia Turner, who is the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times in charge of entertainment and culture. That is correct. Hello, sir. Good morning. Yeah. Welcome. All right, should we dive right in? Green Book is based on the supposedly true story of the unlikely friendship between Don Shirley and Tony Vallelonga. Shirley was a jazz and classical piano virtuoso. He was also black, and when he toured the Deep South, he hired a white driver. As played by Mahershala Ali, Shirley is high culture royalty, a beautifully turned out prodigy who is also a little joyless, I would say, and finally melancholy. He downs a bottle of Cuddy Sark every night in his uh, motel room. Tony, meanwhile, is a hoodlum with a heart of gold, but with some pretty backwards ideas about race. Tony will teach Don to be more a man of this earth and its people. Don will teach Tony racial empathy and improved diction. Oh boy, can't wait to talk about this one. Let's listen to a clip first. Well, we should set up this clip a little bit because uh, you need to have the the visuals in your mind as you hear it. So you've got uh, Viggo Mortensen as Tony Lip driving the car, Mahershala Ali as Don Shirley in the back. And Vigo is passing back pieces of Kentucky Fried Chicken from a bucket and trying to force them on Don Shirley. It just seems... So un- unsanitary. Just relax and enjoy it. You know, my father used to say, whatever you do, do it 100%. When you work, work. When you laugh, laugh. When you eat, eat like it's your last meal. You want another piece? Here, have a breast. Delicious. Take it. Here you go. What do we do about the bones? We do this. This is what we do. There you go. (laughs) All right, well, to talk about this movie, we're joined by Kay Austin Collins, who is, of course, the film critic for Vanity Fair. Cam, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. 
uh, where, 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 where do you even start? I mean, just take it away. I mean, I when I saw a preview for this movie, I couldn't believe it existed. I've just seen the movie. I still can't believe it exists. Uh, I mean, just to set it up a little bit, it was doing really sluggish business, kind of a nothing movie. Uh, one was able to dismiss it, you know, without seeing it and on the merits, you know, and uh then all of a sudden it nabs the Golden Globe for best whatever drama, whatever that category is, totally improbably. I mean, it was it's, comedy, right? It's, it was classified as a comedy. comedy yeah. Whatever, right. I mean, yeah. Also Dramedy, best supporting I mean, actor and best screenplay. Right. Best screenplay. I mean, unthinkable. Anyway, Cam, you've written, you know, perceptively about this movie and it's obvious the failings of its uh, racial imagination. Why don't you just take it away? I mean. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, it's funny to listen to that scene. Um because it does encapsulate so much of what I think I dislike about the movie, but also what people like about the movie, which is that there is this rapport between the two of them. This is a moment that's sort of midway into their their friendship, if that's what you want to call it. And we've seen sort of Dr. Shirley be pretty resistant <laughs> to Tony Lip's charms. Um, and this is a moment where they're in the car, they're driving, and Tony Lip is just, he's he's been eating for most of this trip. He's sort of messy. He's like a, a messy, greasy guy, whereas Dr. Shirley is very refined, um, very refined, very shark cheekbones, just very, you know, smooth guy. Um, and this moment just, like, it was one of the moments in the, in, in the theater when I, I just, I had to pause because I thought, okay, it's not, it's not that there are black people who, who, you know, like, it's not, it's not hard to imagine a man like Dr. Shirley, who in this moment is is being exposed to fried chicken in a way that he hadn't been before in his life, I guess, to the point that he wouldn't know what to do with the chicken bone when he's done with it. But I, as a black person sitting in that audience watching a movie that purports to be a true story, I'm thinking, okay, wait, pause. Did this really, did this really happen? Is this fabrication? I feel the same way about uh, another scene that I think is after it, uh, of them sitting in the car and Aretha Franklin coming on the radio and Little Richard and Dr. Shirley not really having a handle on either, like, it's either a matter, depending on the artist, it's either a matter of who the artist is or of the song, like identifying the, the song and knowing that voice um, and, and things like that where, you know, we're talking about, you know, this is an extremely talented musician. This was a guy who lived atop Carnegie Hall, which could go multiple ways. You could imagine him class-wise being sort of removed from from a certain uh, popular culture. Um, that's not hard to imagine. But he is also a pianist. It is weird to think a pian a black pianist of that era would hear, for example, Little Little Richard, and and not identify right and he plays is. jazz standards right. it's not like he's a classical pianist right right so it's and it's like and he's classically trained and he is a complicated guy and he has complicated feelings about the the raciality of the music that he performs he's a complicated man but these are the kinds of claims that make me stop and say okay I need to know. I need to know where these stories are coming from because you're saying a lot. You're saying a lot. I I I don't know if if the filmmakers really thought about this, but this is sort of where my beef with the movie is. But you're saying a lot about a black guy of that moment, given what his identity means, given what cultural stereotypes mean today, even, but of course then in terms of their sort of prejudicial power. You're saying a lot about a guy when you say that he is far removed enough from his black identity that he he doesn't know how to eat fried chicken and he doesn't know Aretha Franklin or Little Richard's music when he hears it. Like that's that's more than just not knowing. That's 
a statement that you're making about that person's relationship to his racial identity. And that was where I sort of thought, okay, I need to know where, you know, I need to know where these stories are coming from. I can't, I can't take it on this movie's word that this is how he felt about, about his, his own kind of racial culture, right? It's, it's, it's not that it's impossible. It's not that it's automatically not true. It's just sort of like in the moment I had questions. And the more that I looked into the writing of the screenplay, et cetera, I just, you know, reached a point where I thought, okay, this is not, this is just not holding up. Well, your line, I'm not sure the filmmakers exactly knew what they were doing, to me, uh, could be an overarching theme of my response to the entire film. Like, yeah. this movie feels like it was made for the racial politics or the racial awareness of, I don't know, 25, 30, 40 years ago. It is just not up to speed. Um, it's 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 got very square and weird ideas about how to think about race and what it means to make a movie about race uh, in this moment directed by a white man whose perspective is that of a white man and whose plot can be summarized as Ingu Kang memorably did it in Slate as a white man makes his first black friend. Um, mm. It just, it feels very unmodern and even that fried chicken scene, which feels sort of like a third rail type scene to portray feels done without any kind of awareness of how modern audiences, diverse audiences, audiences who are accustomed to thinking about race in the way that more people are starting to would receive it. And it 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 feels like an artifact out of time, I think. Right. It feels like early in this conversation, rather than as a as a tag at the end, we should introduce stories from outside the theater and outside the set of the movie, which are now having a big impact on the way it's being received, especially after all these awards. So I don't think you mentioned this up top, Steve, but one of the writers, co-writers of the script, the now Golden Globe winning script, is Nick Vallelonga, who is the son of Viggo Mortensen's character, Tony Vallelonga. So it's a it's a son re, sort of repackaging the anecdotes that his dad told him as a kid about this road trip he took across the South, which in real life, I think, lasted even longer than, right? right? It's compressed it's in multiple the multiple years, I think. Um, but yeah, they, they traveled for quite a long time together. And so he had all these stories to tell his son that his son has now adapted into the screenplay. That's something to know because, you know, Cam, when you start questioning the truth value of scenes like the fried chicken scene, you have to know that they're filtered through this son who obviously loves and admires his dad and wants right. to burnish the story and make it the story about his dad. Viggo Mortensen is the protagonist. It's not the Don Shirley character who remains pretty mysterious to us, right? Right. Um, and, and we can get into that, what remains mysterious about him and why those things are kept off screen. But then the other family connection to note is that Don Shirley's family, the descendants and also the brother of this real-life pianist, were not contacted by the filmmaker or the screenwriter and have and when the movie came out issued a, a, a sort of a press release like a family letter objecting to the portrayal of their ancestor of their relative and just you know essentially saying this is not true these two men were not friends um you know that Valhalla was his employee and that they had that employer employee relationship and what were some of the other things they're contesting oh well the movie implies that he's estranged not just from his blackness but from his actual family members which appears not to have been the case at all right and, and it's complicated because then on top of those stories there are increasingly stories from friends of Dr. Shirley on kind of both sides of this there are people who seem to say that are coming up in interviews in IndieWire and elsewhere, they're, they're seeming to say, you know, um, this movie is true to the spirit of the man that I knew. And there are other people who are saying 
this is completely bogus. I mean, I think I think my takeaway from all of that, and I think certainly the movie and, and Mahershala Ali's performance does give me this as well, is, is that he's a very complicated guy. And the way that he navigated his multiple identities, including his sexuality, um, is complicated. And I think that's sort of what is hard for me about this film, because as annoyed as I am by the things that were not thought about, I also I, I see how things were missed. The, which is not an excuse, but it's it's sort of like this guy is too complicated to be a supporting character in this movie. It's not even that I don't think that Tony Lip should have a movie because actually I think that Tony Lip, for reasons that really aren't in this movie, is a really interesting guy. He had sort of like a you know he he was a he worked for the Copacabana, which comes up in this movie in a strange way when he. Uh, catches when Dr. Shirley is caught with another man and is arrested. There's a scene of of Tony Lip not caring because he used to work at the Copacabana, so I guess that's supposed to mean that he's seen gay stuff before. Um, but but things like that where he's like an interesting guy. His attitudes might even be interesting. Um, he appeared in movies, etc. But this particular trip, when you take like all the historical weight that it leaps into, that this movie knows that it's about, that people are saying that it's about, it's about racial reconciliation in, in the kind of civil rights era. Um, when you take that and then you add all these other layers of complication to Dr. Shirley, I just walk away thinking, yeah, you can't, he can't be the side story in this movie because there's no way you're going to do him justice if what you're trying to do is tell a story of racial reconciliation. Clearly, the story between these two men is much more complicated and much more interesting than I think Nick Vallelonga in particular really um, gave it credit for being. Because as, as you say, Danny, he is trying to, you know, these are the stories that his dad told him. These are like road trip stories. And even though he says he has recordings of them and even though he says that he talked to Dr. Shirley about this as well, um, we just aren't privy to that. And so I just don't know really if I can trust what he has to say about about Dr. Shirley. But I certainly know that, I mean, here's the irony, right? Like, if this is a story of racial reconciliation, if it's a story about Tony Lip's changed attitudes, why would we in any way take at face value his stories, his understanding of Dr. Shirley? Like, why would we trust Tony Lip's account of Dr. Shirley, if the idea is that he doesn't know. One of the critics that we read, I don't think it was you, Cam, but someone wonderfully described it as a Ken doll movie. Like it has no genitalia, <laughs> you know? It's sort of hiding away all the parts yeah. that you that would actually cause you to reckon with, you know, shame or doubt or fear. Right. And the other thing that's odd about it is that it does sort of invert a couple of tropes that we typically see in movies and turns the Viggo Mortensen character, Tony Lip, into like the magical galoot, like the magical white idiot. Like he's this idiot right. savant who's like, hey, yo, hey, yo, what if you uh, got in touch with your, you know, your cultural <laughs> heritage? Um, and <laughs> it's like just grimacy. However, I also yep. feel like I need to admit that despite all of these reservations and all of these consternations oh. and furrowings of the brow, oh no, this movie is kind of fun to watch. No, but I hear terrible movie. But I, but I, I sort of, Julie, I sort of see what you're saying. Like, look, this is probably one of the first. I mean, this is certainly the most fraught Fairly Brother project um, <laughs> I've watched. But I'm not going to act like they can't do like either Fairly Brother, brother and we, we're only talking about Peter in this case. But I'm not going to act like they can't make like an entertaining movie about big weird personalities. That is like what they're good at. 
So, Cam, or any of you, what do you think the future of this movie is going to be? I mean, the last, my last entry in Movie Club, if you remember, Cam, was me confessing the morning after this won all those Golden Globes. Fine. I never saw Green Book. I thought it was going to sink out of sight. It looked really sappy. Now it's getting all this recognition, so I got to see it. But what's going to happen next? Because now there's a, we're in full Green Book backlash mode, right, with the Shirley family <laughs> complaining. And now the revelation that Peter Farrelly, the director, exposed himself on film sets 20 years ago. It was like a regular gag, like the dick in a box of Peter Peter Farrelly. Um, it just seems like I can't see this movie going into Oscar season with without a lot of odds stacked against it to uh, to continue to win awards, no, and recognition. But audiences, what about that? So this is hard bec- for a few reasons, because every other day of the year, I think a lot of critics in particular are sort of like, the Golden Globes, they don't matter. It's just like a bunch of people in the room. We don't know who they are. It's the HFPA, Howland Foreign Press Association. We don't know who these people are. It's not Their predictive of weird. anything. Right. Not predictive of anything. But then when Green Book wins Best Comedy, we're all like, oh, crap. Um, like, maybe this movie has more of a shot than we thought it did. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, we're in an interesting era of the outrage cycle where it's a thing that we all have a name for and it's a thing that we all expect. And certainly I would have expected it of Green Book of, of any movie. But it's hard to say because people can say about like the Peter Farrelly stuff. People can say that was 20 years ago. My take on it, though, is that like 20 years ago, Peter Farrelly was like in his 40s. So I, I don't really care. You, you can come up with a sort of like times have changed. People don't flash their penises at people on movie sets anymore. And I, sure, I hope that's true. But I think 20 years ago, we still knew that that was bad. I, I, you know, and it's something that in the article uh, that describes this, it's, it's, you know, something that he and his brother did. It was like a bit. It was something they did hundreds of times, they said. So I don't know. I mean, do people in Hollywood care about that? I don't know. I would hope that, like, they weren't going to vote for the movie anyway. It's hard to it's hard to say. I do think, though, that, like, I, I don't think we can underestimate that people, A, people like this movie. They enjoy this movie. B, they don't see anything wrong with its depiction of Dr. Shirley because it's not embarrassing. Um, and it is such a dignified performance. And I don't want to undersell that Mahershala Ali is wonderful. He's a wonderful actor. And when he's given things to do, as he is in this film, he really he really just turns out something beautiful. And I think that they might think that he honors the performance, even if they have qualms about the script. I don't know. I mean, you can also add that, like, you know, there was there was just that tweet from Nick Vellalonga from like 2015 at President Trump that they someone found and that's been going around about him seeing Muslims cheering the crashing of the towers, which disturbs me because, I mean, a fundamentally untrue. And we all know that at this point. But B, that was 2015. That was not a long time ago. Um, and that to me is like the layer of irony icing on the cake. Where it's sort of like you wrote a whole movie about racial reconciliation and how your dad changed mm. decades ago. And three years ago, you tweeted something like this. But again, I don't know. Do people in the, in the academy, are they going to matter? You know, are they going to care? I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I think they've reached a point where they're just saying, you know, boys will be boys. And that was 20 years ago. And in the context of the Weinstein stuff, maybe this doesn't look that bad. And in terms of bad politics in Hollywood, a lot of people in Hollywood have bad politics. So I don't know. You but know? but still, just I mean, just karmically in the year of of Black Klansman and if Beale Street could talk and Black Panther, right? For this to be the movie, well, hopefully yeah. not. But for at the moment, for this to be a movie that's at the center of awards conversations, completely made by white people, ugh, it's just it's a bad it's, look. It's weird. It's bad. I have hope. I have hope. I I think maybe the performances might get honored, and honestly, I wouldn't. I I would be okay with that. I suppose it would depend what the lineup is and who asked me. But, you know, I do think that actually 
Vega Mortensen, Mahershala Ali, and Linda Cardellini, who has like four lines, but somehow is like a four-dimensional human, despite having only four lines. Yeah. Um, not that she's in the running for awards particularly, but just the, the the actors in this movie act the bejesus out of this ill-conceived script. So I'd be fine with some acting nominations. And I sort of think that, you know, the Golden Globes aren't predictive for all kinds of reasons, but this strikes me as one of those places where um, a, a group of people who are not American by definition, because it's the foreign press, uh, are responding to kind of a 60s notion of racial politics that that sort of rings true to an international idea of American racial relations that I think will ring less true to people in the American movie industry. And I, I mm-hmm. think it will have less of a haul Uh at the Oscars themselves, and maybe even on nominations morning as well. Right, I, I I agree with that, and I have to add very quickly that that in addition to its totally anachronistic racial politics, it, the movie's slow as dirt, and it takes place in screenplay land. I mean, it mm. just it, as soon as the as soon as the premise is is you know established slowly, I should say, in, with inc- incredible lugubrious pacing in the first 10, 15, 20 minutes of the movie, the rest of the movie unscrolls, you know in your head oh, without without having on. to watch it with a couple of the only time it deviates is is through preposterous coincidences or plot twists what about the stirring moment when he calls Bobby Kennedy who calls the governor who gives Ugh. that racist sheriff what for <laughs> <laughs> I mean I'm very tempted to let that be the last word oh my uh, th- this thing's not going to even come close to sniffing the best picture Oscar let's be real um all right. Well, listen, um, Cam K. Austin Collins of Vanity Fair Film Critic. Thank you. So fun to have you on the show, Cam. Please come back soon. Yeah, I would love to. And I should say the piece is The Truth About Green Book. It's uh, in Vanity Fair. You can find it on the web. K. Austin Collins, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Well, before we go any further, uh, I'm sure we've got some business to hash out. Uh, Dana, what do you what do you have there? Just a wee bit. Our only business today is to let you know that in our Slate Plus segment, we're going to be taking one of the leftover listener questions from our call-in show at the end of the year. It's going to be producer's choice. So our producer, Benjamin Frisch, will spin a giant sparkly roulette wheel and settle on a question that we have to answer. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a great way to support the magazine. For just $35 for your first year, you can cover the cost of producing this show and all your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of this show and all your other favorite shows and many other great benefits. So if you'd like to help support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Steve, back to the show. Tidying up sounds so much nicer than, say, digging a hole in the ground and burning everything you own to a sweet and tangy crisp. Nonetheless, I think at its core, there is a deep insight to the new Netflix show, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. That insight is that we buy stuff 
unconsciously only to have it weigh upon our conscience to play at the edge of our awareness ever after as individual items that we purchased in a semi-trance state aggregate into something called clutter and this then creates this really is what the show is about stay stay with me creates a kind of loop uh, of domestic tensions as they project onto the piles of crap and also as the piles of crap feed uh, into your domestic tensions Getting your shit really, really together has been the basis of Kondo's cleanup empire. She has something called the Marie Method, which is a five-step philosophy for eventually decluttering your life and living in a kind of uh, mindful elegance. Um, its central principle is joy. You take each item, you look at it, and you ask yourself, does this item give me joy? If no joy, no pity, no regrets, remorselessly, you rid yourself of all joyless items. Anyway, why don't we listen to a clip? Are we ready? <laughs> So weird. This first thing you picked up, I definitely don't really want this, I could tell. When you let go of an item, you must thank it. Thank you. Thank you for letting me wear you. Yeah. I like that. Okay. These guys, I like these. Mm. Yes, these are really comfortable. I wear these a lot. So, is, okay, I don't know what this is. I'm already looking at it and knowing I don't want it. So thank you. Oh my yeah. God, I could have got rid of all of these. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> thank you. Let me put this in. Julia, I think there's uh, there's some pretty seriously divided opinion on Kondo's work. I mean, she you know uh, she advises getting rid of all of your books except for thirty. And June Thomas used a phrase that I absolutely loved. She called it a kind of anorexia of things. Nonetheless, uh, some people do live surrounded by, you know, tottering piles of disorganized crap, and they take a kind of uh, strength and sense of purpose from this show and from her book. What do you what do you make of Marie Kondo? Oh, man. Well, there's the question of what do we think of this show, the object, and then there's the question of what do we think about the craze for Marie Kondo's KonMari method. And I can't remember if we discussed her book or her work when excerpts of it ran when it first came out and was first a craze. I think I endorsed um, her book, as I remember. I remember us having a, a small conversation about it at the end of the show. Did you, did you KonMari your life? Well, we'll get there. Not exactly. But that book did change my approach to organization in some way, although I never did the extreme five-step method that she demonstrates in the show. Yeah. I mean, I would say that to point one, the show, I enjoyed the show. I don't really watch this kind of reality show, this sort of intervention show. I probably won't watch much more of it. But for one of those shows, I thought that the way that it treated its subjects, the people whose lives are undergoing transformation because they are getting decluttered by Marie Kondo. Um, It treats them with a quiet humanity that is just at odds with the like tone of, of primetime reality shows, you know, there's not like it just, the Netflix of it quiets down the tone. So you're not like previewing the horror shot of the heaping mound of stuff with like, boom, 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 noise. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's like you, you, I have, you, maybe you can tell from these ludicrous sound effect descriptions that I haven't actually spent a lot of time watching those shows, but I kind of feel like I know, you know, how they play the disastrous mess in homes in other shows like this. And there is a respect for the fact that any sort of human could get themselves into this kind of fix where you find your 
space overwhelming. And so I liked that dignity that it accords its subjects. They are in diverse life circumstances. They seem to have diverse incomes. They are racially diverse. Uh, it's a, it's a, I think I've watched four episodes or three and a half. Um, and it is well done, I think. Then there's a the question of what do you make of the fact that there are so many people who are so overwhelmed by their stuff and who desperately need Marie Kondo, who in the show is like, uh, I mean, in some ways she has the least humanity of any of the characters in the show. She's portrayed as kind of like a manic pixie cleaning sprite, or she seems like a magical figure in the show somehow. But um, I basically watched the show and felt like it was a document of our completely broken economy and the disrespect for the art of homemaking that we currently exist in. Nobody has time to keep a home because they have to, you know, parent in a way that people didn't use to parent that's overly attentive to children. They mostly have to work two jobs. They uh, just just the fact that it used to be a full-time job to run a household uh, seems kind of unfactored in to the economic structures of modern life in America and uh, people work a lot and then they acquire a lot of stuff and then they don't have time to deal with it and then it drives them crazy and then they drive each other crazy. And you can kind of see that cycle in all of these places and it made me very depressed. And the the other thread running through it is just the gender dynamics that there's one in the third episode, there's a family where nobody in that family can keep track of their possessions except for the mother and the mother knows where everything is all the time. And um, this <laughs> resonated for me because... And our family, I'm known as the finder, like mama is the finder is a recurring refrain. It's mostly applied to Legos, like I am good at just patiently slowing down and finding the random small disc that has like skittered off into a corner. Um, but also I am the person who keeps track of all the crap in my head, even though I have a very equal and wonderful partner who certainly shoulders his share of the workload, but just the notion that so many of these stories are like the men realizing that the women have a lot of shit to do uh, was another depressing thread. So good show, depressing country. That's my verdict. <laughs> uh, Dana, um, yeah, exactly the right way to parse it. What do you make of it as a object, as a TV show, as a viewing experience? And what do you make of the implications uh, behind it? I mean, it's 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 very mild, actually. This show, if you if you've read her book, I feel like the true the true harshness of the Konmari method doesn't quite come through in this show because it's very gentle, as Julia says. It doesn't pathologize. It's not about pathologizing hoarders or showing us freaky people who have freaky amounts of stuff. Most people's houses in this show look pretty normal with some areas of clutter, and uh, and it's not it's not a queer eye kind of situation either. About you know we're gonna. We're going to upgrade your whole life and there's a makeover involved and everything's going to be adorable and we'll throw a party at the end. Often at the end of the show, the person's house looks a lot like it did at the beginning, but they feel better about knowing where their things are. So that is a sweet and gentle part of the show. I But I feel like if you went into it not having read her method or sort of tried practicing it yourself, that you wouldn't really learn how to clean. I mean, that actually actually makes it feel a little bit like the Samin Nusrat show about cooking, um, salt, fat, acid, heat that we talked about in that uh, you're kind of joyfully experiencing a new way of eating or cleaning, as the case may be, 
but you you don't quite come out with practical advice about how you would do it yourself, especially the stuff that Kondo herself says is the hardest to clean, which is things like papers and sentimental objects. That That is often skipped and glossed over in this show so that we can get to the part where everybody says, my life has been changed by Marie Kondo. So, I mean, essentially, it's a it's a complete fantasy, right, that, that just cleaning out your stuff is going to somehow reset your marriage and reset your life. But as fantasies spread by Netflix programs go, it seems like a harmless and maybe even helpful one in that people will tidy their homes more. I don't know. I, I find it hard to believe that anyone would get passionate about cleaning after watching this show. And yet it seems that, you know, people are going mad with taking their things to thrift stores and that this the turn of the new year as this show was released, obviously released with the turn of the new year on purpose to spark this effect. Um, people have been going condo mad. Mm-hmm. I, you know, here's what I like about the movement in general is that it's in an indirect way, a descendant of John Ruskin's idea that let nothing into your home that is neither beautiful nor useful. And, you know, he had this sense that that, that modernity was going to involve inelegance via clutter and kind of mindlessly purchased consumer items that would pile up and make homes inelegant and, um, and just hard to you know, move around or be in or use. And um and in that sense I, I I like the idea of it marking a maybe I mean we're gonna have to shift away from overconsumption towards something else. And if it is away from consumption in the direction of elegance and mindfulness, someone pointed out that condo has a kind of animistic relationship to things. Um oddly enough the, the, the healthy relationship to things is to endow them with a kind of spirit and then to respect the spirit of each thing. Um, I mean, that that to me is taking a, a little far, but just anything that'll take us in the direction of, of con- consuming less and consuming, therefore, more mindfully is, is really healthy. That said, you know, it, it, the, the show, first of all, as a show, reminds me of the old Monty Python skit, How to Play a Flute. And the answer was you blow into the hole there and you put your fingers on the holes there. You know, it's, it's, do you really, I mean, you know, to the degree that there are psychological reasons for hoarding or, or being a kind of hoarder light um, and psychological barriers to overcoming those habits and, and, and decluttering your space. I don't think of her method. I mean, her method is sort of a ripping the Band-Aid off method. I mean, you know, sort of taking every item of clothing that you have and piling it on a bed in order to, to have the, you know, kind of horrific but therapeutic realization of, of, of how much you've collected and how little you use so much of it. You know, I mean, it's it's sort of like if you could do that, you then would all the other stuff would follow. But I just think that that's a that's a extraordinary, extraordinary if, um, especially if you don't have this sort of sprightly semi otherworldly creature uh, and a bunch of Netflix, Netflix cameramen piling into your home. So as a show, I found it kind of uncompelling in a weird way. But I found um, you know, the, of in our reading packet, the thing that I found most interesting was uh, Laura Miller wrote about, um, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna kind of go deep on why people accumulate shit, let's by all means go um, deep. And and Laura Miller identifies this secret language of clutter, as she puts it: the piles of stuff we might need someday are an argument that we will always be around to need them. The plans to revisit those photos and take up again that course of study, the books we fully intend to finally read, assure us there will be enough time to do so. 
mementos presume the ongoing existence of a rememberer. I mean, there is a weird way in in which having a kind of denuded, sterile, perfectly elegant home just seems vaguely in inhuman to me. And 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 it's 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 about a different kind of denial or self denial than than being glutted on useless shit is. But that's part of what makes the show maybe feel less draconian than the book. And and I didn't read the book, but um, these people don't throw out all their possessions. They discover mementos and memories. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. taking them from having stuff to, you know, a, a, a minimalist psycho killer's apartment. It's taking right. them from being overwhelmed by stuff to a deeper connection with their stuff because they've actually encountered the things that they value. In one of the episodes, they find a family album um, from right before uh, their parents or grandparents were interned uh, during World War II. This is a Japanese-American family. Um, And, you know, then find a set of kind of dolls that belong to the grandparents that were just buried in a box somewhere. And that same uh, husband also goes through his collection of beloved baseball cards and keeps a bunch of them. And and the after, I mean, I sort of loved the after pictures in this. The after picture of the master bedroom has like 10 file boxes in the corner of it. But those file boxes have been, been gone through and it sort of suggested that they're full of the baseball cards. But whatever they're full of, it's a set of stuff that has been actively chosen to be kept. The show is very respectful of people's relationship with their stuff and doesn't suggest they should have none of it, just that they should be more deliberate about what they actually have. I will also say that watching this made me realize how much we are creatures of our upbringings and that I grew up in a home where things had a place and they weren't always in the place, but but there's a baseline level of where does everything go and a structure and a system. And the part of it, it hit a nerve to watch the show as I'm setting up a new household out here in California and trying to figure out if we own a hammer and trying to figure out there's a couple different weird closets by the laundry and what which which is for pantry and which is for like the question of where does everything go was very resolved in my New York life and is very unresolved right now. And, you know, I watched some of the episodes last night while I was putting all my laundry back where it goes and it felt very satisfying once it was all there and the little socks were in the little sock bins and the little tank tops were in the drawer where they go between the things and the things like it's just pleasurable to put things aright and um it felt like she was helping teach people that that instinct and it's something that I realized that I grew up learning by example and taking for granted uh and maybe it's a compulsion and I would have much more time to enjoy my family if I didn't worry about where the socks went or ordering bins for them on the container store. But it makes me happy to put my socks where they go. <laughs> I mean, as maybe the only one of us who needs KonMari, I actually am, as I've mentioned on the show before, a, a hoarder light. And I would love to have a Japanese Sprite come in and fix my home problems. Can we talk about the Sprite thing, though? Like, what is it about the structure of the show that makes Marie Kondo seem magical um and and how and how do we feel about that presentation well for one thing she's introduced only as this occasional visitor right she comes to the house in this in this kind of gnomic way where she comes first to bless it and do this kind of ritual where she finds a place to kneel down and welcome the house or greet the house i forget what she calls it then she talks to people about their belongings then she disappears for a number of days sometimes weeks right some of these people seem to take a month or so to do their clearing 
and she comes back to to witness the progress. So that is already different from, for example, the Queer Eye guys that are right in there with their sleeves rolled up, changing things themselves. I'll just be completely candid. I think it's a delicate subject because you don't want to other this person because she happens to be Japanese. She very, very rarely speaks in English. Um, But she's four foot eight. She has a kind of magical and otherworldly presence. She has an a Japanese interpreter with her who doesn't have that presence. I mean, I don't think it's a it's a feature of being an Asian woman. It's something about being Marie Kondo that has this, you know, spirit. I mean, she herself has a kind of paganistic, animistic relationship to things. That's that's the basis of the whole philosophy, and she herself has this kind of paganistic, magical presence. And so I guess, Dana, I'm struggling to find a way to express that without... I mean, the question I guess I would throw to you is, does the show itself participate in a kind of Orientalist, you know, as the critics say, uh, othering? I don't know. I mean, can I can I be honest? That does not bother me in this show at all. It, yeah. it seems like the cultural differences are spoken about. She talks and laughs about how American trash bags smell different than Japanese trash bags. We never see Marie Kondo's home or how she lives, but there's a variety of different homes. And she herself has said in interviews that, for example, wearing white, as she does, almost always have some white element on, is her brand. I think she's aware that she presents as this you know, creature from another world, a cleaner, yeah. purer world. And I don't think by this show, anyway, and certainly not by her book, that that world is presented as being Japan. In fact, I think she says that she got into decluttering as a child because she had lots of collections and knew lots of people who had lots of collections. So I just don't think that that, you know, that pure minimalist Japan versus cluttered America is something that's being put forward by the show. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, the show's tidying up with Marie Kondo. It's on Netflix. Check it out and uh, talk to us about it on Twitter. All right, moving on. An unapologetically mean review is a big swing and the ultimate weapon for passionate but principled critics who want to love everything but will not hesitate to really, really, really hate something. So writes Rob Harvilla in The Ringer in a piece called The Art of the Pan, What's the Point of a Bad Review in 2019? Dana, I feel like this is a subject that we circle and circle and circle we and circle back to plenty of times, which is kind of what the obligation of the critic is to the material under review, the artists who made it, the audiences who made love it, even though the critic hates them, and what their obligation is to what they perceive to be the truth and their own taste as they see it. What did you make of this kind of, you know, sort of deep dive on um, on film and TV reviewing? Well, I mean, there's a lot going on in this piece that sometimes makes it a little confusing. For example, the anecdote that it kicks off with is not about critics. It's, it's about two artists talking about not liking something. The opening anecdote is John Krasinski, the actor and now director, hanging out with Paul Thomas Anderson because they're both two handsome movie making guys they're hanging out at, at a birthday party and uh, and John Krasinski confides not naming the movie that he there's a recent movie that he he couldn't stand and Paul Thomas Anderson takes him aside and says to him quietly don't go around saying that because artists have to support each other and you know we're not going to put each other down if you don't like something just leave it alone right which I actually found that quite moving as a thing for one creator to say to another and the idea that you know filmmakers are not pitting themselves against each other or but trying to form some kind of community but that has nothing to do of course with the duty of a critic which is not to build up the community of fellow critics or artists but to well that that's the big question i guess what is the duty of the critic i think we can all agree that one of the duties of the critic is to take 
a piece of work that's presented to you and think about it, right? Think it through. Think about where it came from, who made it, why they made it, who it's for, what it's trying to do, whether it succeeds at what it's trying to do. There's a whole lot going on when you decide to criticize something. But the ultimate goal has nothing to do with what that anecdote is about. Then we go off into conversations with all kinds of other critics, including A.O. Scott, chief film critic at The New York Times, Slate's own Willa Paskin, our TV critic, and uh, and others who are interviewed about how they feel about panning something, really absolutely trashing it, and also how that's changed in the era of the internet and criticism becoming so democratized that everybody can share their feelings about something. So as touched as I was by by Krasinski and Paul Thomas Anderson's agreement to um, to be buddies, that didn't really have any bearing on the rest of the article for me. I do think that a related question for critics, though, is when there's a work of art that you really hate and uh, and you know that it's going to make a big splash for you to splashily say that you hate it, how much pleasure and joy do you take in that? How much do you regard that as the fulfillment of your mission as a critic as compared to bringing forward work into the light that you want to promote, that you love, that you want people to know more about? Because, of course, as soon as you write a pan, you're drawing attention to yourself and your own writing as much as you're drawing attention to the work in question. And you want to balance that so that it doesn't become all about you. Right. I mean, pans are performance pieces. And Julia, you know, when you write one, and I've written a few, is, you know, the engine does start to rev a little bit, right? And it starts to spin a little bit faster, maybe than it's pushing the actual car in this metaphor, that being, you know, the actual powers of your actual judgment, and the service that you're performing with them for a readership, uh, which is rendering a, you know, serious judgment on something that they may choose to see or not see. Uh, and anyway, you get caught up in your own rhetorical magnificence. Uh, and um, you overdo it in some way. And A.O. Scott in the piece says it's a dopamine rush. And this, tr- and this, you can speak directly to this. The truth is, and Scott says this, editors love bad reviews but people read bad reviews people claim to hate critics and they claim that you know the critic is actually this resentful worm who wishes he or she could be the creative person and so revenge is the motivator and on and on but the 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 clicks don't lie the clicks don't lie people are so drawn to elegantly rendered angry negative rhetoric true or false um, that is true. I'm not sure that's like the relevant question or let me let me think about that for a minute. I mean, yes, people like to read things that are surprising and interesting and new rather than things that they expect. So hearing a critical voice backed by a illustrious institution come out swinging for a cultural object that has some heft is not the usual order of things. The more frequently things are middling and reviews say, this piece had some fine qualities, also a few flaws. And um, so any extremity is fun and interesting, basically. Extremity at either end. Hyperbole is fun and interesting. This is the best. This is the worst. Like, yes, that there is a human impulse toward that. And criticism can play into that. I mean, the thing that I feel like these, um, you know, that, that uh, whenever creative types disparage critics or the act of criticism. And uh, I did not find this anecdote touching, Dana. I was like, you unctuous schmuck, Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> like, why are you making stuff? Like, it, the point isn't for for creativity to exist. Creativity is not like a great force on its own. It's like, what are you making? What are you saying about the world? Like, to me, criticism is a moral act. 
not a moralizing act, but a but an act of care and devotion to the object. It's a little bit KonMari. You you're you're focusing on the artifact, the thing that has been made. You're you're giving it the respect of your full attention and your full brain. Uh, you're trying to suss out. I mean, good criticism. You're trying to suss out what it is trying to do what the theory of the case was, whether it executes, um, and what it even means to try to do something like that at this moment. I mean, as um, we are recording this before our Green Book segment, but as we will no doubt have discussed in our Green Book segment that you all just heard, uh, the question of like, why make this movie is one that's worth asking right now. Um, and a world where art just got plopped onto the conveyor belt of culture, and then the whole world was like, Yay! A creative person did creativity. Woo! It's like such a sad idea for the universe. Why would you want to make art and have it just fall into a pond and make no ripple whatsoever? Ugh, disgusting. But Julia, you you do agree that those are two completely different rhetorical acts. Someone sitting down to write a piece of criticism and two guys having a conversation at a party about their colleagues. Yes, no, you are you are correct that that is a weird lead for this piece. And uh, and that, sure, artists are entitled to feel about criticism the way that they do. And it also, of course, it must be so hard and horrible to have to read criticism of your work. Mm-hmm. But the yeah. point is that your the, your work doesn't exist to make you feel a certain way about it. It exists to connect with audiences and, and um, you know, your art isn't for you. So who cares how you feel about the reviews? Your art is for the world. And the critic is trying to... Uh, you know, to help interpret it for that world, and right, like right. that's an, that's an act of love, and 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 when a pan comes from a place of of caring so much and loving the art form so much and having a view of what it would mean to contribute to the world, the, the like like all good all good pans are. I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. Right. All good pans come from a place of of advocacy for the form and what it can be and for art and what it can do, right? And 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 are, are calling out something from falling short. A pan that is literally just grave dancing for, with no sense of stakes for kicks to get laughs, like that is a morally empty act and a, and a yucky one. Mm-hmm. But, right. um, but a pan that comes from a place of trying to figure out what makes good things good and how, and, and takes such, takes joy when more good things come into the world, like that's an act of love. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I would come down somewhere in the middle. I mean, I think that there's a good reason to start a piece like this with an anecdote like that. And then, you know, the now somewhat famous Dave Eggers quote about what motivates critics and um, uh, on and on. And that's that I think artists or people who create culture um, that is not criticism feel like they know something the critic can't know or doesn't know or has to make an effort to know and they want the critic to make that effort. I'm being extremely generous in my interpretation here. But those those two things are the immense, immense amount of work and care that it took to make something. And and you know, film like films are kind of unique in a way because they're so collaborative, they're so expensive, and they take so long to move through the development and then the production pipeline and then the marketing pipeline. You know that that a, that a billion variables are in play, and and one or a handful can go wrong and destroy the whole thing. And so there's this sense that you know a, a huge amount of of a huge a, like an inconceivable amount of creative effort went into producing a novel, a book of poetry, a film. Um, uh, uh, and second of all, 
the the vulnerability that the principal creative people feel towards something that they've made it's it's the the probably closest analogy is to you know a ch- you know bringing a child into the world i mean you, you know this sort of surrogate of your own self is now moving off into the world and that that the vulnerability you feel on behalf of it may not just be vanity right it might be a form of like deep care um and i think what creators are asking is that the critic show some responsibility to that by not being or ever being casual about those two things right and and that now where that goes wrong is there's this sense i agree julia that 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 critics somehow are part of a community that has to treat everything with respect because getting anything made in the film world is so difficult and that the critic, you know, can only make it harder by being negative and therefore is, you know, aligning with the suits as an enemy of the artists. I mean, to me, that's, that's crazy, right? Because the critic is balancing sensitivity to, you know, the creator's vulnerabilities and difficulties against an obligation to tell the truth about something and they didn't become a critic by accident presumably they you know have a have a sense of taste and judgment and an ability to express with a degree of spontaneity what their feelings about a work of art are and this need to demonize critics as as kind of cockroaches as resentful cockroaches which has really appeared as a, a kind of stereotype in film in the in recent years to me is so incredibly sad because you know great criticism has had a really synergistic relationship with art forms for hundreds and hundreds of years right that you wouldn't you wouldn't get a certain kind of poetry if you didn't have Hazlitt or Edward Thomas you know or um or uh Edmund Wilson you know you wouldn't get modernism in the form that it took if it weren't for Edmund Wilson you wouldn't have gotten the auteur moment in America if you didn't have Pauline Kael writing about film in that way and then it's it feed it it feeds back in this kind of beautiful way there are filmmakers now today who said they never would have made a film they never would have picked up a camera if it weren't for Paul, Pauline Kale. so the need to belittle and demonize critics as a way of coping with that vulnerability on the part of the artist to me is is equally small-minded and casual um so I guess I'm asking for some kind of feel-good detente Dana yeah <laughs> uh <laughs> I mean, like I said, I think that th- there's too much going on in this piece to even address it all. Like part of it is the, is the question you're talking about. What is the audience's relationship to the critic? What is the artist's relationship to the critic? But ultimately, I think the question that it's trying to ask, or at least the most important question to answer is, what is the critic's relationship to the material and what's their responsibility for presenting that? I mean, I will say in sympathy with the, the Krasinski PTA axis that I think I enjoy writing hands less than I used to. And I, that may be because there's just much more criticism out there and I don't want to be part of a wave jumping on something. Um, but it also is just a sense that there's always going to be bad stuff to trash and it's really rare to find something great to champion. So that doesn't mean you soft pedal it when you're writing about something bad, but that maybe, for example, and I know there's a lot of, of, of editors of book reviews go by this principle, that you just don't bother with something if it's bad, you know, that you try to spend more time focusing on things to bring into the light rather than having a whole page of headlines that are just snarky takes on on bad current pop culture. I don't know. I don't. I don't have an answer, but... Julia, you're about to start editing critics, or you are doing it right now. So what kind of balance do you try to strike? 
I mean, Dana, I've been at in critics for years. Um, no, I mean, you you want when you're going when you're saying something's terrible, you want it to be consequentially terrible. And you want it to be a if you're going to go for a pan, you want there to be a sense that promise and potential has been squandered, that resources have been squandered. You know, making good art is hard. And when someone new who has not I mean, like we saw a movie at Sundance last year that we ended up not talking about that was just really bad but but it was like a new person trying to make a thing and i'm glad we didn't have to talk about it it wasn't worth us talking about it for 12 minutes and saying that this person who tried to make a thing had failed to make a thing that was really great um and so you want to pick your targets and i think you know the uh, first of all props to this piece for shouting out willa's uh, true detective season two faq as a great piece of negative criticism um that was the piece in which Willa just laid out how labyrinthine and insane the plot of season two was. Um, but Willa makes the point that, you know, there that one side benefit of there being so much stuff now is that the critic can really, you know, isn't stuck reviewing the three things that got released each week from the three places that you review all the things from. You can pick the things that are, that merit a critic's attention, either because they're inspiring and wonderful and glorious or because they are... Um, a misfire from some set of talents who are capable of more. So I guess that's how I think about it. Yeah, A.O. Scott has something great to say about that, which is that, I mean, to him, the most valuable pan, and he mentions the the Freddie Mercury biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody, in this connection, that the most rewarding pan to write is one that recognizes some sort of cynicism or bad faith in the in the work or the creation of the work. You know, that you're not just saying um, this, this is aesthetically a disaster. This doesn't succeed at the things it's trying to do. But the very things that this work of art is trying to do are reprehensible. You know, when you feel like you have that kind of moral motivation to write a bad review, then it's... It just it feels it feels better. It feels like a better relationship to the art and to the public than, you know, going through the trash so you can pull out something horrible and talk about how horrible it is. Mm. All right. Well, the piece is called The Art of the Pan. Uh, It's uh, on the website, The Ringer. Check it out. All right. Moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Well, funnily enough, after just talking about great reviews and bad reviews and things that inspire passion and hatred, I'm going to endorse something that is good but not perfect. That is would have that would have inspired had I reviewed it a very mixed review, but that I'm still really glad I saw. It's um it's the movie Stan and Ollie, the new biopic about about Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, which was released at this kind of awkward time, the end of the year, but it wasn't quite an awards run up movie. It sort of got lost in the holidays. It's still in theaters, but I feel like no one is seeing it or talking about it. And uh and it's it's really quite wonderful. It is a conventional biopic. It doesn't burst any any great limits in that genre, but it has two really, really great performances of uh, Stan Laurel is Steve Coogan, which is just perfect, perfect casting. And uh, and John C. Riley with amazing prosthetics looks exactly like Oliver Hardy. And uh, and it's them at, at later in their career. It's not when they were making silent movies or even sound movies. It's a story of a very particular time in the 50s when their career was sort of on the downside and they were doing a, 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 a vaudeville tour. And um yeah, I don't want to give away too much about it. It's based on a true story. I'm sure it compresses a lot of things and, and sentimentalizes a lot of things. But if, like me, you love Laurel and Hardy and, you know, love love that time period and love classic film history, this is kind of a, a great little micro biopic glimpse at, uh, at two of the greats. So um, Stan and Ollie starring Steve Coogan and John C. Riley. Julia, what do you got? My endorsement 
This week is the career thus far of Adam Moss, the extraordinary editor of New York Magazine. It was announced today on the day we're recording that he is stepping down as editor of New York to try some other stuff and um, to have been editing magazines and to be a magazine editor while he has been a magazine editor is like, I don't know, Steve, help me with the sports metaphor. It's like playing in the NBA when Michael Jordan exists or playing in Major League Baseball when Babe Ruth exists or, I don't know, painting in the same, you know, being a painter at the same time as some crazy renaissance. Like, to get to watch his work, envy his work, steal his ideas, um, and hear from many people who've worked with him uh, how it is that he conjures the things he conjures journalistically is a joy, a career joy. And I'm so grateful for his work and excited for him to do whatever is next. And I should note here, of course, that my sister-in-law is the CEO of New York and my husband used to work there and I'm conflicted out the wazoo on this, but it is uncontroversial to say that Adam Moss is great and I want to say how much his work has meant to me. Yep, here, here, one of the greats. All right, so I am endorsing an essay um, by the philosopher Martha Nussbaum, whose work I've admired for 30 years at least. Um, this is, I think, an especially beautiful, really, piece of writing about her old mentor, the British philosopher Bernard Williams, who died a few years ago um, in 2003, actually, so quite a while ago. But she wrote a remembrance of him, I think at the time, in the Boston Review that is an astonishing essay because it it manages to both eulogize Williams personally and professionally, both as, as, as a mentor that she knew personally and as a philosopher, a person who attempted to do a, you know, a very specific thing in the context of philosophy and details precisely what her interactions, meaningful interactions were with him and what they were like in a way that's completely honest uh, and yet honors his memory manages to lay out with total clarity and precision what his philosophical project was and why it caught him between these two poles of Kant and Nietzsche and how Williams tried to make philosophy and moral philosophy answerable to the messiness of actual life. Uh, She honors the way he did it, which was writing with total lucidity, no jargon, um, uh, with a a, uh, a clarity that a writer in any form would aspire to, but is remarkable in the context of philosophy, while at the same time, you know, criticizing isn't exactly the right word, but engaging dialectically with what she saw as the possible shortcoming of his work, which is the extent to which the messiness of human life has to answer to norms of justice, or as a collective project, humanity is lost. We have to give ourselves universally applicable rules to live by even as we each individually lead an irreducibly complex and singular existence. And that's why it's fucking, fucking hard to be human and fucking hard to be a moral and political philosopher. And Williams did have an appreciation of this, but she comes out in a different place. And I just think it's one of those things that people who have maybe no interest in philosophy as an academic discipline, but every interest in thinking through the problem of being alive um, ought to read it. I really believe that. Anyway, it's called Tragedy and Justice, Bernard Williams Remembered by Martha Nussbaum, and we will link to it. That sounds great. 
that's an amazing i mean it is an amazing piece of writing you know i mean it is like being on the basketball court with michael jordan and wondering like why you ever thought you had the right to you know dribble a ball but um so you but call martha, martha nussbaum the uh adam moss of living philosopher <laughs> <laughs> sure uh yes she is she's up there she's 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 in her way is a great one You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or interact with us on Twitter. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Culture Fest.